Let's pray together, and then we're going to get into 1 Peter. Lord, we just thank you tonight for the word of the living God. This is your eternal word, Lord. And you have given it to us on purpose so that we would be edified, exhorted, strengthened, and comforted in the Holy Ghost. You have given them to us for our learning so that we can walk wisely in this world, successfully in this world, and bring forth fruit in this world. Lord, we thank you for the great teacher of the church, the Holy Ghost of God, being here right now to open our eyes and open our ears and open our understanding. And Lord, we just pray that you will give us deep insight into what you're telling us through the word that you gave through your apostle, Simon Peter. Breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, I receive your word. Remember Sunday we talked about receiving that word. One thing to read it, another thing to receive it. So let's just lift our hands and say, Lord, I receive that word. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, God is good. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks left and then school's back in session. I just can't believe how fast things are going. Do you know that we met last Tuesday about our Christmas production? Everybody say, you have to be kidding me. No, we have to be way ahead of the game. So, wow, time is going by. But thank God it's going by with us glorifying the Lord, living for God. Amen. Getting into his word is never wasted time. Now, tonight... uh, We're going to be looking at two things that Peter gave us, your scriptures and your sanctification. Your scriptures and your sanctification. If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. Now, there's your scriptures. And I tell you all the time, that word is unlike any word, unlike any book on earth. That is God's word to you and to me. It's a love letter, a really lengthy one, 66 books, amen, by over 40 authors over a time span of about 1500 years and so it's a very very special book you hold in your hand now last time we covered the first nine verses of first peter that focused on your salvation now if you caught on i'm kind of doing it that way your salvation tonight your scriptures and your sanctification and i'm putting a your in front of every one of these things all the way through to the end of first peter so Verse 9 reads, receiving the end of your faith, what everyone, the what? Salvation of your souls. Now this time we're going to talk about your scriptures and your sanctification, starting with verse 10. So let's read verses 10 and 11. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. You know, I could take any of these verses and spend the whole night on them. Those two verses are so loaded. Although God himself moved the Old Testament writers by the Holy Spirit to write what they did, they still desired to understand the full import of what God was showing them. They were, they were moved along by the Holy Spirit, and they wrote down what the Holy Spirit was moving on them to write. Now, it was not automatic writing. Please understand. Everybody look at me. They were not in a trance. You know, writing, staring off into space. No, 
They were inspired. They were moved or borne along by the Holy Ghost like a breeze blows a sailboat. All right? The breeze just blows that sail and, and the boat just, just sort of cuts through the water. They were, they were moved by the Holy Spirit and they wrote as they were inspired. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. But even with, with the Holy Spirit leading them, and as he was leading them to write what they wrote, they didn't understand it all. They, they were going, I wish I understood this more. I wish I got this more. The Holy Spirit was not ignoring their human reasoning, but what he did do is he overruled it. So even though they're, they're writing, and, and you know Peter's writing along, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, how did he know that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, how did he know that they wanted to understand better what they were writing down? That there was a, there was a lack in their understanding. How did Peter know that but what the Holy Spirit showed him that? Because Isaiah never says that. Jeremiah doesn't say it to my knowledge. Peter was shown this by the Holy Spirit. So here's Isaiah writing down about Jesus. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is... His, his visage is, is so marred. He, he's beyond recognition. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him our iniquity. And as he's writing, he's going, when is this going to happen? When, when is this Messiah going to come? And he didn't know. By divine revelation, the Holy Spirit imparted to a variety of holy men of old truths about God Sin, salvation, the future, and so on. And when they put their thoughts on paper, they did so in words that the Holy Spirit himself supplied, as Peter himself tells us in 2 Peter 1.21, which we'll cover later in this series. They prophesied of the grace that would come to you from Genesis to Revelation. Salvation highlights the pages. And the prophets saw it coming, not just for the Jews, but for Gentiles as well. How many of you are so glad we Gentiles were included? Amen? I think we have one full-blooded Jewish person here tonight, Mike. Anybody else full-blooded Jewish, born Jewish? Okay, we're all Gentiles. Thank God we've been grafted in. We've been grafted in. Amen? Now, while the prophets had a basic grasp of the plan of salvation that the Christ would suffer for mankind's sins, there was much that they didn't fully grasp and searched to understand, particularly the timing that the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing to. And you know what? God never showed it to them. God left them in the dark on the when of his plan. And so Paul comes along later in Galatians and says, In the fullness of time, God sent his Son. But nobody knew when it was going to happen. It was unknown. They just knew that it would. Verse 12 says, To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things that angels desire to look into. So to them it was revealed that they were ministering Things that were not going to take place in their lifetime. Hebrews talks about, says that they all died in faith. Isaiah died in faith. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jonah, Hosea, 
Daniel, they all died in faith, not having received the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, so that they without us could not be made perfect. That's Hebrews. So what's it talking about? It's saying that these people died in faith. Now let me just, let me just take you somewhere here tonight. I've heard, and you've probably heard it taught, that when Jesus died, he went to hell. And some have even taught that he suffered in torment for us in hell. And once he suffered in torment for us, then he came out. Now, let me tell you the real truth. Jesus did not go to a tormenting hell when he died. Matter of fact, when Jesus gave up the ghost, the Bible says that he went down to the lower parts of the earth, but where did he go? He went to Hades. Now, please understand, Hades is not the the lake of fire. It's not the burning lake of fire. Matter of fact, nobody, nothing is in the lake of fire yet. It's waiting. Nobody has gone to that burning hell yet. There's nobody there. Well, then where are they? Remember when Jesus gave the parable about the rich man who died? It's in Luke's gospel. The rich man who died and his servant died as well. And his servant's name was Lazarus. Now, the rich man wakes up in Hades. Not hell, which is Gehenna in the Greek, but Hades. He wakes up in Hades, and he's tormented. And he asks for some water to be put on his tongue. You remember that? And he looks across a great gulf, a chasm, there in Hades, and he sees Abraham. And he sees resting in Abraham's bosom his former servant, Lazarus, who he had given the crumbs of food off of his table to. And the dogs had licked his sores. Remember him? And the rich man says, Oh, let me go and warn my brothers of this place, for this is a place of torment. And he was told, They won't believe you, even if you rise from the dead. And that's Jesus saying, I'm going to rise from the dead. And a lot of people still aren't going to believe. But he, he looked over and there was a great chasm. And the rich man was told, you can't go there. And your former servant Lazarus can't come here to you. So we see a Hades that consists of two places, two parts. It's divided in two places. One is Abraham's bosom. The other part is a place of torment. And listen, it's, I'm going to call it this, it's like a holding tank waiting for the great white throne judgment. And when the judgment comes, the revelation of John says, death and Hades will spew up the dead that are in them and they will be judged according to their sin. But now, so here we got, we got the place of torment. We have Abraham's bosom. Who went to Abraham's bosom? Who went there? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the prophets, these all died in faith. All the Old Testament saints died in faith. And where did they go? They went to what was called Abraham's bosom. They went to the good part of Hades. Now, when Jesus died and rose from the dead, we're told that a bunch of the Old Testament saints suddenly came out of their grave and were walking around Jerusalem. I mean, it was really freaky. Here's, I don't know who they were, because it doesn't tell us any names, but let's just say it was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Let's say that it was Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They're walking around. There's Daniel. Daniel. 
There goes Hosea, and there's old Jonah, and they're walking around. What does that mean? The Bible says that when Jesus rose from the dead, he went to the good part of Hades, he preached victory, and he led them out of Hades into paradise. It says he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. How did I get off on all that? <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm wanting you to understand here is, is that um, there, there was a place that Jesus went, but it was not the burning, fiery hell, but it was Hades. And there he delivered those who had died in faith. And now they're in paradise with him. And so it's that while the prophets had a basic grasp of the plan of salvation, that Jesus would suffer for mankind's sins, there was a lot they didn't fully grasp, and they searched to understand the timing the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing to. They never did. God left them in the dark, and they died in faith. And they went to that good part of Hades, and now they're out. And where are they now? They're in paradise with Jesus. Amen? Peter mentions the disappointment of the prophets when they realize, I'm not ministering these things for my time. This is in a time that is later to come. They were seeing things not for their day. Now, from the beginning, Old Testament prophecy contained this kind of a time lapse. For instance, Abraham hoped to possess the promised land per God's promise, but it would be 400 years before Abraham's seed possessed it. So there was a huge time lapse. In Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy of a coming Messiah was given, yet it would be many centuries before God sent him in the fullness of time. So then the Old Testament prophets, they saw clearly that many of their prophecies belonged to ages other than their own. So they laid the foundation on which the apostles and the prophets and the teachers of the church age built. Peter says it was to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel. Amen. And so we wonder, you know, we see these time lapses, you know. Uh, God gives Abraham the promise that his seed would inherit the promised land, but it took 400 years. But now here's another one for you. We have been promised that Jesus will return, but it's been over 2,000 years. We go, where is he? Well, the Bible says, as a matter of fact, Peter says, consider it not slackness that the Lord is waiting this long, but he's not willing that any would perish, but all would come to the knowledge of the truth. For a day to the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So for us, it's been, you know, 2,100 years since Jesus was here, and when is he going to return? But the Bible says, for God, a whole millennium is a blink. He's waiting. Uh, not willing that any would perish. So there's always these lapses when it comes to prophecy and the fulfillment of that prophecy. Now, Peter ends verse 12, mentioning the desire of the angels. This blows me away. He says, which things, that is the plan of salvation, the angels desire to look into? I don't worship angels. I don't talk to angels. I don't pray to angels. But you know what? I'm thankful for angels. I believe if God opened our eyes tonight and we could see what he sees, there's angels in this room. I believe there's angels around the building. 
I believe there's particularly a few around you when you get in your car and drive. I, I, I believe that one of the real surprises of heaven is going to be how many times angels delivered us or protected us and we didn't know it. But look at this now. Angels have curiosity. They have curiosity. Which things the angels desire to look into. They have emotions. They desire things. Angels have always been interested in what God is doing. From the creation, they were there. To Abraham and Jacob, to Israel's deliverance from Egypt, they were there. To heralding the birth of John the Baptist, they were there. And the birth of our Lord Jesus, they heralded, they proclaimed his arrival. To ministering to the Lord in the wilderness, it says angels came and strengthened him. All the way into the coming apocalypse that is yet to take place, angels have and will again play key roles. And they, they want to know. They have, they have longed to understand what God was up to with the plan of salvation. No doubt, they watched in awe as the Son of God stepped off his throne on high to descend to a small planet in a distant galaxy to be born and become a member of the human race. And they long to fully grasp what God is up to in his redemptive plan for mankind. And I personally believe when Jesus died on the cross, it says there was a great stillness. I believe every angel in heaven was bowed and I believe was in shock. That Jesus, who commands them, God's son, God wrapped in flesh, God incarnate, would allow man who he created to abuse him, beat him, and kill him on a cross. They watched all that and they said, I wish we could fully understand this. When he rose from the dead, they're going, I, I, I wish, I, I rejoice, but I wish I understood what, what, what God is fully up to with this plan of redemption. Peter said they, they desire to look into this. Can I tell you something tonight? You understand more than they do. Amen? You do. So the word of God you hold in your hand is filled with prophecy about your salvation. Now let's move on to your sanctification. Peter's going to focus first on God's character and how his own holiness requires us to live a holy life. Look at verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I believe verse 13 has verse 12 and what we just read about the angels in mind. He seems to be saying, live clean, the angels are watching. You say, really, Jeff, do you really believe that? Well, I can show it to you in 1 Corinthians 11.10, and I can show it to you in Hebrews 12.1. Hebrews 12.1 says, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and part of those witnesses are angels. Amen. The word for gird up, the Greek word that gird up is translated from, is a Greek word meaning no slackness or looseness, and it points to our thought life. All of our mental powers must focus on the imminent revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, folks, one thing we never, never, never need to quit expecting and looking forward to, and that is the return of Jesus Christ. Amen. Can you say it with me? He's coming back. Do you really believe that? He's coming back? Let's try it again. He's coming back. Do you really believe that? Do you? All right. Of course he is. 
John said, as long as you keep that hope in you, you are purifying yourself. You'll live a clean life if you expect that he's coming back. Do you ever wonder why he never gave us the date and the time? He said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has in his own hands. You ever wonder why he didn't tell you the date and the time? I'll tell you why. When my parents would go on vacation, we used to say to them, when are you coming back? (laughs) And my mother, very wise, would say, you think we're telling you when we're coming back? We know what you're going to do if you know when we're coming back. This house will be cleaned up six hours before we get back. We want you to not know when we're coming back. Right? She could almost have said, we're coming at a time you don't expect. We're coming in the midnight hour. You better have your life straight, son. Now, that's why he didn't tell us when he's coming back. Because he that has this hope in him, it causes you to lead a pure life. He could come at any time. And I want to be ready. I want to be ready. I want there to be oil in my lamp. I want my lamp to be burning. I don't want to be backslidden. I don't want to be off partying hardy and living like the world. I want to be waiting on Jesus to come back so that when he comes, I'm welcoming his return and not dreading it. Amen? Amen. He also says, be sober. You see that? He says, gird up the loins of your mind. Always be thinking of his return and be sober. Be sober. That literally means, I'm going to tell you, I'm not... I'm not uh, sugarcoating this. It means not drunk. It means not drunk. Be sober. Don't be drunk. Symbolically, it means to be self-controlled and able to think clearly. I've shared with you many, many times here, I don't like anything to cloud my thinking. Not anything. Amen? I like having a clear head. I like being able to think clearly. I like being alert. Be sober. Be vigilant. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, walks up around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We're called to be alert. We're called to be sober. We're called to be level-headed and, and, and ready for his return. So I don't, I don't do anything to cloud my mind, ever, publicly or privately. I don't do anything to cloud my mind. I want it to be sharp because he says be sober, be sober. Be self-controlled. Be able to think clearly. See, now he's dealing with our sanctification. I'll say that again. We first dealt with your salvation, then your scriptures, but now your sanctification. Sanctification simply means to be separated from and unto. So he's separating us from the world and the sin of the world unto himself. That's sanctification. So one of the aspects of sanctification is, if you're expecting his return, it sanctifies you. You you live clean. He could come at any time. I want to be ready. I don't want to be caught off guard. I want to say, hallelujah, Jesus, good to see you. I've been waiting. Glory to God. Take me home. Let me enter into the joy of my Lord. Amen? Amen. So this is part of your sanctification. Verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. Now notice the word conform. We often teach, and I've been preaching on some of these lately, we're not to allow ourselves to be shaped and molded by this renegade, godless culture that we live in. Amen. Please hear that. 
something and someone is shaping you, your values, your principles, what you live by, what you live for. Something is shaping you. And it's either God and his word or it's a renegade rebellious culture that is teaching you your values. And I'm telling you, you can be as saved as the day is long and still have worldly values if you don't have your mind renewed. How are we transformed? By the renewing of our mind. How is our mind renewed? By living in the word of God. Daily. Daily. Amen? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Daily. How often do they gather the manna? Daily. Every morning. They gathered that manna. And it was fresh. If they tried to eat yesterday's manna today, the Bible says it stank. They couldn't live on yesterday's manna. They had to get fresh manna every day. It's the same with you and me and the word of God. So we, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Peter says, once you were ignorant, but you're not ignorant any longer of what displeases God. Now, verse 15, for he, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Now here, Peter pulls straight out of Leviticus 11, verse 44, which says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Why are we to be holy? Because our Heavenly Father is holy. God has called us Christians to live a clean life. But he's not only called us to it, he's empowered us to do it. Watch this verse. It is God who works within you, both to will, everybody say want to, and to do. The will of God. So God first gives us a divine want to do. I want to please him. I want to walk in his will. I want to do what he says. I want to obey him. I want to have peace with God. And so first I have the want to, but then God says he's going to give you now the power to do what he's caused you to want. Amen? Now, the command to be holy, I I admit to you, can sound daunting. Holy. I hear the word holy, and it just sounds too holy for me. (laughs) Holy. You know, I picture somebody, you know, in some monastery somewhere, and they never go anywhere. They never do anything. They just sit and meditate, and they're, they're holy. You know? It can sound daunting. But here's a little phrase. Never forget. God's commands are his enablings. Meaning... He never calls us to something we cannot do with his empowering help. He never says, I want you to live holy if he's not going to empower us to do it. Have you ever stopped to think there's a reason the Spirit of God is called the Holy Spirit? He's the Holy Spirit. So guess what? Inside of you, there dwells the Holy Spirit. And so what is the Holy Spirit going to make you want to be? Holy. Amen? The Holy Spirit empowers us to live clean before the Lord, which is what sanctification is all about. Now look at verse 17. If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now notice, after telling us to be holy, he talks about calling on the Father. In order to live holy, we must often call on the Father for help. Amen? Peter is stressing a life dependent 
on the Father's help. I love the verse in Hebrews that says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain two things, very important, mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. How many of you could use a little mercy tonight? All right. And how about some grace? Now, mercy is when God forgives and God cuts you slack and God helps you and, and God, God uh, picks you up again and God dusts you off again. And, and he's long-suffering with you. He's merciful. Grace is God empowering you to do what you ought. Freedom is not the ability to do what you... or the, 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 Yeah, it's not the ability to do what you want. It's the power to do what you ought. I'm going to say it again. Freedom is not the ability to do what you want. That's what we think growing up. Once I'm out of this house at 18, I'm going to go do what I want. But that's not freedom. Freedom is the power to do what you ought. Power to do what you ought. And so how do you get the power to do what you ought to do? You get it from going to the Father and saying, Lord, I need some mercy. I need some grace, and I'm coming boldly to your throne. I'm not coming in as a beggar. I'm not coming in with tuck head. You know what tuck head is? You're staring at the ground, and you won't even look at somebody in the eye. No, we come boldly to the throne of grace. We say, Heavenly Father, I'm your child, and I'm in a battle, and I need help. I need mercy, and I need grace. If I'm going to live a holy life, I need your empowering to help me. And God says, you got it. I'll give you mercy, and I'll give you grace. Amen. Thank God we serve a Heavenly Father who is approachable and who receives our cries for strength and for help. Now, Peter also mentions having a healthy fear of God. Let me talk about fear of God for a moment. I've heard people say, you know, I don't think that I could ever be a Christian because I don't want to walk around terrified of God. That's not what the fear of God means. The Bible does not teach us to be terrified of God. It doesn't teach us to be tormented in our fear of him. Fear of God is talking about the reverential, respectful fear of God. It means I respect him. And I also know that if I go off into the flesh or into the world, my heavenly father has a shed out back. If you've ever been in there one or two good times, the Bible says God doesn't judge or condemn his children, but he chastens his children. He convicts of sin. He's not the author of condemnation, but he is the author of conviction. And he convicts. And if we deny the conviction and we go off on our own, God has a way of taking us out back to that shed. And God, who we reverentially Respect can make you remember the shed. Amen? Because it is not a pleasant experience. But it says he chastens us for our own good that we might be partakers of his holiness. So there's that word again. So he chastens us. He convicts us. He chastens us. He knows how to turn the screw. He knows how to tighten the vice. He knows how to get our attention. We say, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, I will not go there again. Yes, sir, I will not go there again. He says, Peter says, part of your sanctification is having a healthy fear of God. Now, why 
Because without partiality, he judges according to each one's work, Peter says. Now, God judges people by two things, what you do and what you say, primarily. He has no favorites, Peter says, without partiality. From presidents to paupers, God judges each person by their works, primarily by what you do and what you say. So as Christians, we should do and say as those who are aware of being watched and heard by the living God. Amen? Amen. Because God is watching and God is weighing every one of our thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes. I'm very aware that God is very aware of me. Are you? I'm very aware that God is very aware of me. He knows every move I make. He knows every word I say before I say it. He knows every thought that I'm thinking. See, Santa Claus stole from God. He knows what you've been thinking. He knows if you've been bad or good. Ah, he's a myth. But the real God knows what you, if you've been bad or good. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you said. He knows where you've been. knows where you're going. He, he knows your every step. It says he knows your step before you take it. He knows, David said, he knows when I sit down. And he knows when I get up. He understands my thoughts from far away. That's God. And so when you're aware of that, then you're aware that every one of my thoughts, there's only four areas I can mess up. My thoughts, my words, my actions, my attitudes. He's weighing each of them. And if I get out of line, God in his love will come and chasten me so that I get back in line and I partake of his holiness. I partake of his holiness. Amen? Verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed. Everybody say knowing. Do you know this? You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Peter says in verse 19, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now here Peter is telling us the only currency that will save your soul is the blood of Jesus Christ. God cannot be bought. Amen. Salvation is not for sale, but all false religions will tell you that it is. All false religions teach that salvation must be purchased or earned by your works. But Christianity is not about your works. It's about his work. Christianity is not do, do, do. Christianity is done, done, done. Christianity is all about what he did because I couldn't do it. Christianity is all about Jesus dying in my stead, rising from the dead so that I could also rise from the dead. It's all about Jesus living out the Ten Commandments perfectly because I could not do it. It's all about me giving him my sin and he gives me his righteousness. It's all about Jesus, Jesus, and more Jesus. It's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. And that's Christianity. Christianity is not me, it's him and what he's done for me. And I put my faith in what he's done. And when I put my faith in what he's done, his shed blood shed for me. And that blood washes away all my sin as if it never happened. 
then it was none of me and all of him, and I can get no credit, and he gets all the credit. That's why we're going to cast our crowns at his feet when we get to glory, because we're going to know, I could never have done it. He saved me. I was lost. I was hellbound, except for Jesus Christ and the grace of God. By grace you are saved through faith, and not of works, lest any man should boast. Amen. Amen. Everybody say, only the blood of Jesus, offered at the bar of God, can purchase my redemption. Hebrews says, I love this, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves. In other words, the Old Testament and all those sacrifices are gone now. He died once for all. He says, with his own blood, not of goats, not of calves, he, Jesus, entered the most holy place once for all. And secured our redemption forever. And he did it with his blood. Muhammad won't save you. You won't save you. Some other philosophy won't save you. Your own good works won't save you. There's nothing you can do to save you. Nothing will do it. Buddha won't save you. Hugging a tree won't save you. Being a good person and never getting a traffic ticket won't save you. The only thing that will save you is the blood of Jesus running down that old rugged cross. That's the only thing that will save you. It's the only thing. I thank God for the blood of the Lamb. Aren't you so thankful for the blood of the Lamb? Aren't you so thankful that you can wake up in the morning and not be condemned, not feel guilty, Your light is a feather because your sin has been forgiven and that heavy backpack of guilt you are carrying around has dropped off of you and you're a redeemed, blood-bought, spirit-filled, heaven-bound child of God. Come on, everybody. Now Peter gets heavy. Verse 20, look at this. He, Jesus, indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last times for you. Now here again we encounter a truth that challenges our limited minds. Think with me a moment. Peter is telling us that God was not at all surprised by the fall of man. Follow me, church. It was foreknown. Remember I tell you the two things God never says? What are they? Oops, because he never makes a mistake. Or will I be, because he's never surprised. Okay? Now watch this. The fall of man was foreknown in the councils of eternity. I don't understand that. But I believe it because the Holy Word of God is telling me. If God acted in creation, he would eventually have to act in redemption. And he acted in creation. Now here's the heavy part. So before God stooped down to fashion Adam out of clay... Before he flung the stars into space, before he said, let there be light, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit conceived the plan to redeem fallen man. In some council in eternity of eternities, before there was any world at all, God the Son said to God the Father, I will go. I already say pretzel brain. (laughs) But that's what happened. And you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. 
Don't tell me the Bible is a book for simpletons. So Jesus was foreordained. The cross was foreordained. Shedding his blood, rising from the dead, living a sinless life, being born of the Virgin Mary, coming into our world, invading planet Earth, a fallen renegade planet, lost, desperately lost. It was all foreordained that Jesus would come. And so once the plan of salvation was complete, God created the worlds. Verse 21, who through him believe in God. That is, through him we believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, did you know it's through Jesus' death and resurrection we believe in the God of the Bible? Without Jesus' death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit would never have come. If the Holy Spirit never, had never come, we would never have believed because the Holy Ghost convicted us of sin. Holy Ghost came into our death chamber and convicted us of sin. And do you know what? As Lazarus came walking out of that tomb, who had been dead four days, and Jesus spoke into that tomb and called him out, as a dead man got up and came walking out, you were that dead spiritually. And Jesus called you out and raised you from the dead. You were dead in your sins, but God made you alive in Jesus Christ, Ephesians says. God raised him from the dead so that our faith would rest in him alone. Now notice, we don't have faith in faith, but our faith is in the God who sent his only son to die in our place and then raised him from the dead. Everybody say, this is heavy stuff. Now, now think with me a moment. Who wrote this? A former salty old cussing, drinking, carousing fisherman. And Jesus turned him into an intellectual giant. Blows me away. I feel like I'm reading some heavy duty, but heavy, you know, philosopher, but more than, this is profound stuff. Look what Jesus put in this man. Wow, what a thinker, what, what, a, what truth the Lord has revealed to him. If he can do this with Peter, he can do this with anybody in this room. Peter says in verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now here Peter directs our attention to the role of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. Our souls are purified, how? By obeying the truth. How do we obey the truth? Through the power the Holy Spirit provides. Amen? That's the difference between a, rela- a religion and Christianity. Religion is you got to do it. Christianity is I'm giving you the Holy Ghost so that you can do it. Amen? Now, there are two types of sanctification. And I want us to understand this tonight. Positional and practical. Positional sanctification has to do with your standing before God in Christ. Our standing is perfect because the blood of the Lamb secures it for us. So positionally, I want you to picture yourself this way. When God looks at you, what does God see? Does he see all your flaws? Does he see all, your, all of your shortcomings? Does he see all those cracks in your character? Does he see that? When God looks at you, what does he see? 
He sees Jesus. He sees the blood. He sees a sinless, perfect person. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made, say it with me, the righteousness, say it with me, the righteousness of God in Christ. So we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. So when God looks at us positionally, our stand before him positionally is, I'm clean as the driven snow because of the blood of the lamb. That's positional. Thank God for positional because now we come to practical. Practical sanctification has to do with our daily walk, which is often imperfect. Anybody in here lived perfectly this week so far? How many of you had to repent so far this week? The rest of you, you you need to repent now. You're lying in church. Okay? We all had to repent this. You thought something, said something, did something, copped an attitude, something where you need to say, Lord, forgive me. If you're walking with him at all, you need to ask for forgiveness on something. But now watch this. Practical sanctification is where we stumble and we fall. We succumb to temptation. We mess up. We're not perfect. That's our practical sanctification. It is the daily outworking of the Holy Ghost in our lives to sanctify us step by step, day by day, more and more. How many of you can honestly say, I know that I'm walking better with Jesus today than I was a year ago? Okay, that's the work of sanctification. That's the Holy Ghost sanctifying you. It's practical sanctification. By the Spirit's power, we daily step more and more in line with our positional sanctification. But listen, I'm always thinking, thank God for positional because practical, I mess up all the time. Thank God for my positional standing. But every day, it's the work of the Holy Ghost. Paul said, faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. And what is the it? He will sanctify you wholly, body, soul, and spirit. First Thessalonians. So God is sanctifying you and me bodily, pulling us out of sinful activities bodily. In our soul, in our thinking, he's pulling us away from the sin of the world. And in our spirit, he's pulling us away from the sin of the world. He's sanctifying us. So that when you go to do something that maybe five years ago you didn't even have any qualms about, but now the Holy Ghost says, nope, don't do it. Don't go there. Walk with me. Walk with me. Come away from them, come apart from them, and be ye holy, for I am holy. So that, that check in your heart, that pulling away from the things of this world, that's the sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, this is the way it works. The Spirit of God convicts us of a sin. We turn to Jesus for forgiveness, according to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And with that forgiveness comes fresh commitment to God's will. You know how how good you feel when you know God's forgiven you? You say, wow, Lord, I commit more than ever now to walk more cleanly in that area than I did before. Through this ongoing process, we grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ. That's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Peter notes that as we grow in sanctification, we also grow in love for the brethren. Say with me, pure hearts. Love best. The more purely we walk before God, the better we will love other people. 
That's why our world right now, that culture out there, I don't know if you've realized it or not, but there ain't a whole lot of love. Is there? There's a lot of hatred. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of contempt. There's a lot of abuse. There's not much love. Where do you find love? God is love. And he that loves knows God. So Peter said, the cleaner you walk, the better you're going to be able to love the brethren. And he said, fervently, which means intently and intentionally, I really do love my brethren. Verse 23, having been born again, not a corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Peter uses the words born again, which we should never lose the wonder of. Amen. I don't want you folks to ever lose the wonder. The phrase born again has been cheapened in our day. But let's never lose the wonder of it because by a literal miracle of God, we have received a brand new divine nature. The greatest miracle that can ever happen to a human being has happened to most everybody in this room. You have been born from above. We have become members of the royal family in heaven. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We have become joint heirs with Christ. We rank higher than the angels. Born again. Thank God. Can we say thank you, Jesus, that I'm born again? Hallelujah. And how did it happen? Through the incorruptible seed of God's word. Having been born again, not by corruptible seed, but by the incorruptible word of God. Think about it. Think that, I thought of this today. The fall of man was brought about by a failure to believe the word of God, wasn't it? Adam said, or Eve originally said, I don't, I don't believe the word of God. Satan caused her to doubt it. He said, has God said? And she quit believing the word of God. If you eat that tree, Satan said to her, you won't die. God's not told you the truth, Eve. And she believed it. So she didn't believe the word of God. But now, isn't it funny how conversely, it's when we now believe the word of God, we're born again. So as we lost salvation by not believing the word of God, we get it back by believing the word of God. Chapter 1 closes with a word about the word of God. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and so do you. Amen? Have you ever just not seen somebody for about 6 to 12 months, and you run into them again? Have you noticed how they look a little bit different? How about when you go to a high school reunion? You walk in there and you think, oh, all right, I'm doing pretty good for my age. And I, I can't wait to see so-and-so and so-and-so. And you thank God there's name tags. <laughs> because you would never know who they are. They come up to you, hey, how you doing? And you go, hey, and you're looking at the name tag. <laughs> and you lie all night long. You're looking great. Oh, you look great. You're lying all night long. <laughs> because what they have done is they've aged. And so have you. <laughs> Amen. If I could get you away from a mirror for a year and you went and looked at it again, you go, oh, praise God. Hallelujah. It happens that fast. Because all flesh is like grass. And the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. 
Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So the impermanence of our world, illustrated by flesh, grass, and flowers, which all come and go, is held up against the imperishable word of God. No book has been more attacked, vilified, scorned, and targeted for destruction than the Bible in your hand. Yet it stands today as the number one bestseller in the entire world. It is this eternal word, says Peter, that was preached to you through the gospel. Amen? Let's stand together tonight, can we? Let's say together, my salvation, my sanctification, my scriptures. Peter's dealing with all of these things. Let's lift our hands to the Lord Jesus tonight. And let's thank the Lord. Let's thank the Lord primarily, not just for our salvation and not just for the word of God, but that he is daily sanctifying us, calling us out of this world, protecting us from the sin and corruption of this world, chastening us so that we'll be partakers of his holiness, setting us apart and setting us aside for himself. And it's only just begun. Eye has not seen, friend, nor has ear heard, neither has it entered the heart of man what God has prepared for you who love him. As the Spirit of God works in you every day, he's preparing you for the next level, the next victory, the next step, the next horizon, the next phase in his calling on your life. He's preparing you. He's working on you every day to willing to do of his good pleasure because God has a plan. So can we just, as our hands lift, say, Lord, sanctify me. Sanctify me. In the mighty name of Jesus, thank you for it. Thank you for it. Let's give the Lord a wave offering. And I just, just say, Lord, thank you. Just wave your hands at him. Just say, Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness to me. Thank you for what you're doing in my heart and life. Thank you, Lord, for delivering me from satanic assignments and preserving me under your heavenly calling. In Jesus' name, thank you for the angels around me. Thank you for your protection. Glory to God, glory to God, glory.